not record. Oh, you got some pipes on you. Thank you. Um, I'm hoping that I can, um, this can be a foray into a <laughs> into a, a music career. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I didn't tell you this. I wanted it to be a surprise. Right. I'm going to sing this episode. Oh. Like the whole thing. And then release a vinyl cut. Yeah. Of yeah. Made. Yeah. Who wants their made? Uh, hi, Muzz. Hi, Amy. Nice to see you again. Same. Glorious day. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Crisp. You know, there's one thing about us, Muzz, that I think is absolutely true. It's that we listen to the people. We yes. When they tell us they want something, we get it for them. That's right. Yeah. It's a theme. I've had at least two people tell me <laughs> that they want or think it would be helpful to have a little mini episode that goes through what made in Canada is M A I D. So, all right. So that's what we're going to do. We're doing it. All right. So I've done a little bit of, uh, research. I have take, I took a, a course last year with Laurier. Yeah. That was a, um, navigating the maid system. It was a course for clinicians Perhaps you should um, explain what MAID is. Yes. Oh, oh, thank you for keeping me on track. Yeah, that's why I'm here. MAID is medical assistance in dying. Mm -hmm. It is currently legal in Canada. Great. Now, that is a change. Historically, it has not been legal. And in fact, it's not legal in many places in the world. And we're going to talk about kind of all of that. Yes. And um, to prepare for this, uh, like I said, I took a course. Yes. Well, I didn't take that explicitly to prepare for this episode. Right. I took it because I'm very interested. Yeah. I also have, I read, I highly recommend this book. And I read a book called This is Assisted Dying. Yeah. It's written by Dr. Stephanie Green. She's Mm -hmm. one of the first physicians to um, work in MAID uh, starting in 2016. And she, it's it's just a really lovely, a wonderful book that gives sort of anecdotes and explains her process and experience with MAID. Yeah, you reference it a lot. It seems to be your guiding light. or It's just great. Yeah. I just have a lot of, I think, um, I mean, to be one of the first physicians in Canada to start doing MAID, I think would take a lot of like chutzpah. Right. Is that a... Yeah. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> we can edit it out. <laughs> I think it would take a lot of... Um, you could say that. Bravery. Yeah. yeah, I just, I I think, and also she was, prior to that, um, worked in obstetrics. Like, she delivered babies. And right. I think that's super interesting as well. Yeah. To um, go, f- like, that's the phases of life, right? Like, okay, I've, I, I've loved doing this phase, the entry into the world. Yes. And I'll now assist with the exit. A good person to speak to it. Uh, agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there are, the Government of Canada website has a ton of information if anyone's interested. Yeah. And I didn't, wink, wink, look at Wikipedia. Wink, wink. <laughs> Um, yeah, so so you're well informed well, on the subject. I've I've tried to keep up with it. It's something that I've been interested in since high school. Right. Um, have you? No, not not 
Not really. No. Okay. I always think like, oh, it's just something like people were naturally all interested in, in this very, in this fascinating topic. I mean, I'm interested, but there's so many hours in a day, right? <laughs> I've, yeah. I have stronger interests. Yeah. Um, well, also I do want to say this is, we'll do a little trigger warning. Uh-huh. We're going to be discussing end of life. Yeah. Um, some of the language around um, assistance in dying, assistance in suicide, people choosing to die, etc. So if that feels uncomfortable for anyone, this isn't the episode for you. Okay. And also, um, I, I also like to provide a disclaimer that um, I'm not a doctor. I don't think you are either. I mean, is anybody really? <laughs> Well, some people are. <laughs> okay. Right. But yes, we're not this is this is really just a conversation um that is meant to inform. And there's some t- some of the things might actually be like not exactly accurate. The the Canadian court system, all of these things that we're discussing, like it's pretty dense. And I think I I read some stuff that was felt real boring sometimes yeah. uh to get to to try and get an understanding of how we got to where we are today well we're gonna do our best yeah and um you're i'm gonna have questions and you're gonna explain things to me it's great and uh we'll see where we get yeah excellent why don't we start with um well where would you like to start you explained what it is Right. So I guess there's some distinctions you should make. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple, there's different countries in the world that have, um, that folks are allowed to receive assistance in dying. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, there are distinctions in how or what type of assistance they receive. So there's euthanasia, which is the administration of a lethal medication by a healthcare professional. So, um, versus assisted suicide where it's a self-administration of a lethal substance that is prescribed by health care so the assistance is the prescription the person takes it themselves okay um so both are available in canada you can have assistance from a physician uh or you can choose to take it yourself you can choose to um ingest the substance is th- is there is one more preferred uh, by, by a fairly significant margin yeah. uh like in the 90 90% people choose assistance physician or or nurse practitioner assistance um yeah it's huge it's a big difference right and um i think it's also like around the world for example the physician assistance is allowed in like Canada, Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, New Zealand, a few Australian states, some other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, assistance, so the self-administration is allowed in Switzerland, which is notable because Switzerland also allows people to travel to Switzerland to receive their, to, to die. So they allow that kind of medical tourism. I right. think it's the only country that allows that. Right. Um, and then some states allow the assisted suicide self-administration, Colorado, Oregon, Hawaii, New Mexico, Washington, Vermont. Like it's, there's, there's a whole set of, it's, it actually is an interesting, it's interesting to think about the different states that allow it and they're next to states that don't. Um, 
I don't have the statistics on how often it's used. I do know that in Canada, since it's become legal, um, there's, there's like every year, the number of people who access made increases. Right. And probably for a variety of reasons, but Mm. yeah, so that's what we're talking about. In Canada, you have the right to receive, if, if you meet the criteria, assistance in your death and you can either have direct assistance from a physician or you can choose to self-administer. So how do we get here? Well, have you heard of Sue Rodriguez? She's she's a good place to start, I think. Sure, I have. And I think she is a good place to start because a lot of people probably our age and older mm-hmm. have heard of her. Right. Because I remember, I, I think we were in grade nine when she she's a woman in BC who received a diagnosis of ALS, which is... Um, a progressive neurological disease that necessarily results in death. So it is a fatal diagnosis. Mm -hmm. She received, she was diagnosed at the age of 41 and that was in 1991. Mm -hmm. And she recorded a video before the Canadian parliament, essentially requesting um, the right to receive physician assistance in dying she challenges this, the, the section of the criminal code, which, um, makes receiving assistance in dying illegal. So that is, I mean, it doesn't really matter. That was section 241B. Yeah. Um, and that made it, a an indictable offense to assist someone in dying and people could receive jail up to 14 years. Um, if they were found guilty of assisting someone in their dying. Oh, wow. So, in September 93, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court of Canada, they denied Sue Rodriguez her right to receive assistance in dying. Uh, 5-4 decision. So a defeat. A defeat. But brings it into the public conversation in a big, big, big way. I still, I know exactly who, who the, like once people say that name, I know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. I also know that... Um, Five months later, an anonymous doctor assisted her in her in her dying and remains anonymous, remains anonymous because actually um, they could still be. Although I don't know what the statute of limitations, if there is one and and things like that. I don't think so, actually. So they could still, I think, be prosecuted um, under the because at the time it was illegal for them to do that. We, you stated you weren't a doctor. I guess we should state you were also not a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I have liked to think myself a lot of things over the years. And I do like to say things with confidence. Sometimes, sometimes that's half the battle. But I, will, I would never suggest that right. I'm a doctor or a lawyer. Okay, so that paved the way for um, a greater conversation. And I guess, what does that bring us to next? So I think, I mean, there was a long time in between anything went before the Supreme Court again. Right. But it's not like... So this was 1993. Yeah, that was 93. That was a while ago. You don't see another challenge before the um, the courts, the Supreme Court, um, until, well, so it starts in the province, but like in 2011, Yeah. that's when the British... Columbia Civil Liberties Association are like, you know what? 
we're going to revisit this conversation. Mm -hmm. This is, and, and I should say there's tons of stuff that's happened in between then. Right. And I think that all of that, like there's lots of organizations that advocate for and have, have and continue to, um, did something prompt this uh, revisitation? Yeah, so um, they they ch filed a lawsuit, uh, filed a lawsuit challenge to Section two forty one B that I mentioned before and Section fourteen uh, on behalf of um, the family. So um, Kay Carter, the family of Kay Carter. So Kay Carter is um, a woman from British Columbia mm -hmm. who traveled to Switzerland uh, to to complete her death. And she, Kay Carter had spinal stenosis. She was in a, having read about it, she was in a lot of pain, like chronic pain. And um, she lived in North Van. In 2010, she traveled to Switzerland for assisted suicide. Okay. And then the other person, so the BC Civil Liberties Association on behalf of her family, yeah. and also Gloria Taylor, who is another BC resident who was diagnosed with ALS. Right. Um, so they challenge this, the sections stating that they violate their, um, their right to life, liberty and security of person. Now, I, I think what's interesting, and this is noted by Dr. Stephanie Green in her book that yeah. I mentioned, mm -hmm. um, the, one of the more unique aspects or the argument that they included in this challenge that was different or in addition to or different from Sue Rodriguez yeah. was that Gloria Taylor stated that um, if it weren't legal for her to receive assistance in dying, that would lead her to end her own life. And because she was diagnosed with ALS and that necessarily results in um a decline in ability to function physically, mm -hmm. she would have to choose a time to complete her own suicide where she was still physically able. Right. And her, she said that would necessarily be earlier than if yes. she could receive assistance. Right. And that was robbing her of her right to life. Right. So kind of, um, an interesting argument before sure. the court. Definitely. And, um, that, so the, the Supreme Court of British Columbia ruled in favor of the BC Civil Liberties Association. Mm -hmm. The Harper Conservatives appealed this. So the federal government. Okay. The feds. Right. The feds stepped in, and that was Stephen Harper. A uh, Because they thought about it differently. Yeah, they did. Yeah. The conservatives, they're, they're not into it. No. Um, and that was overturned. So they're the BC the court the Supreme Court of British Columbia they is were like, like yeah yeah you got a point and they and were, then they Stephen come in. Harper was like no <laughs> he was on his, he was walking his son to school shaking actually, hands with his son actually no <laughs> no you don't get to do this no um, so then they file an appeal to the Supreme Court this is just the way it works right yeah and this these are the, the steps you have to go through one has to go through uh, so then it goes to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, so then the, we're talking about like, it's filed in 2011. Yeah. These are the swift wheels of justice at work in Canada. Sure. It gets overturned in 2013, mm -hmm. goes to the Supreme Court. And then in 2015, the Supreme Court of Canada rules in favor of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association mm -hmm. on behalf of the family of Gloria Taylor and the family, or sorry, Gloria Taylor and the family of Kay Carter. And what was that ruling? Is called the Carter decision. 
That's why it's called the Carter decision. Right. What I'm getting at is I that know. it was unanimous. Oh, yes. You're right, Muzz. Did yeah. you? Have we? Did you cheat? <laughs> <laughs> I know some things. Oh, you did some research. So A Far Cry from 1993. That's right. So they, <laughs> that struck down Section 241B and 14 of yeah. the Criminal Code. Yeah. This in a unanimous decision. Right. Exactly. So you're talking, what are we looking at? Uh, oh, my God, my math. That's like 20 years later? Sure. No. Is it? 20 years later. Approx. Approximately. We have a situation where um, unanimously they agree with the BC Civil Liberties Association that, in fact, the um, criminal code violates our Charter of Rights and Freedoms by not allowing medical assistance in dying. So while we say nothing really happened between 1993 and 2011, I would just say that perhaps we've had a conversation and public sentiment has changed. Even just in the conversation um, around, like people start, Jack Kevorkian was like, you know, a pretty like well-known individual, Dr. Death. Yeah. Um, He he was a real pioneer, I would say. Mm -hmm. He was um, assisting folks in their dying, like openly with acknowledgement that it was against the law. Right. He was charged. I don't, I actually meant to look up if he spent any time in jail. Um, I think he did. I think he did. He was in Michigan. And anyway, so it's like a topic of conversation. It's very topical for a long time. Sue Rodriguez being like a a catalyst, but certainly, and I think people adjust. That's just what happens within a culture, right? Like your initial hearing of this idea feels like outrageous. Absolutely not. Yeah. And then people get more used to it. I mean, they some people think about don't. it and it affects people personally and they talk to their friends about it. And that's just kind of how social progress works. So, and you know, everyone, but we want to hear the, the human stories behind it. And yeah. so that's what someone like Sue Rodriguez is the human story behind it. And then you yeah. hear more and more and like Kay Carter and, and Gloria Taylor. And so these, these yeah. individuals, these names are super important. Right. So so basically what happens like the Supreme Court's like, yeah, this these sections of the of the criminal code are do violate our rights. Yeah. So then they're basically like, OK, you guys have 12 months. The Supreme Court's like, you got 12 months to figure this you out. You guys being the lawmakers. Yes. OK. So the the Senate and the House of Commons are they 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 basically they're told like you guys got to figure out by the the legislators have to figure out how to legislate this yeah so right now everyone's rights are being violated yeah so that's cannot stand that shall not stand (laughs) with (laughs) and uh you know the they they create a joint committee yep and about a year later they they release a report yep on February 2016, with 21 recommendations for legislation. Okay, and that is called. So what ultimately went to pass is called Bill C-14. Right. Okay. But the 21 Thanks. recommendations, um, a lot of them were included in Bill C-14, which is what is the first. A lot of them, or all of them? Not all of them. Okay. So uh, some were left out, yeah. uh, and I think probably the more sort of controversial ones, including the mature minor, yeah. the mental illness as a primary diagnosis, yeah. and advanced requests. Okay. So, Which is? So an advanced request would be uh, like pre-planning your maid. 
Um, And those were sort of not included in the original bill. Bill C-14 was introduced to the House of Commons on April 14th, 2016. Yep. And how'd that go? It became law. Okay, June, great. June 2016. Were there any objections? I mean, there was a dissenting opinion. I believe the, the conservatives, again, wrote... There was lots of, like, position papers written. Yeah. And, like, and people... Like, in those joint committees, there's people who just fundamentally disagreed with this. Yeah. But... Um, and, I mean, I think there is probably, across Canada, you could poll and find that there are a, a chunk of people who don't agree with the, the original decision. Right, right. Uh, but... That's neither here nor there. Right. So on both sides, in fact, there was probably some dissent, one suggesting that this is too much, too fast, we don't agree with it. Yeah. There was another side that came in. That's right. And immediately we're like, this is way too strict. Yes. Yeah. And they're immediately like, hey, we've been advocating for this for a really long time and you've created legislation that excludes and it's egregious and unnecessarily excludes a chunk of the population. So if you look at the original Bill C-14, the eligibility requirement. Yeah, I do all the time. <laughs> I'm constantly <laughs> looking at that. Yeah. Um, I mean, the some of it like makes complete sense, right? Like you, so unlike Switzerland, Canada's like, we don't want people traveling to Canada to receive assistance in dying. Right. And so you have to be eligible for government funded healthcare. Yeah. 18, like that, you have to be 18 years old, which we talked about the mature minor. They were not, that was not included in the legislation. Okay. Um, but the suffering, they an individual must be suffering from a grievous and irremedial con- condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, terrible and non-curable. Right. And the death must be reasonably foreseeable. Now, that is the piece that a lot of people felt was far too strict. Right. And that led to like some like immediate challenges. So, so just expand on that a little bit, speak to it. So there are folks who argued that that requirement was too restrictive. Mm -hmm. And actually some of the stories, like, cause Dr. Stephanie Green in her, when she's like the on the ground, she's the in vivo examples that I can draw from because she writes about them. Let's do that. She um, describes visiting people who have wanted and been waiting for medical assistance and dying to pass because they have are living um, in like profound pain. They have yeah. conditions that, for example, like um, severe arthritis or um, it, I mean, there's any number of conditions. So seemingly that, incurable, but not terminal. Exactly. They could live for years with them. Right. Their argument is that why should they have to? Right. Um, if they don't want to, if they feel ready to die. But she does talk about going to visit people that based on those the rules that were laid out in the original bill c14 she would start talking to them and kind of know pretty quickly that they aren't eligible and feeling you know i mean she has to follow the law that's like pretty clear yeah um and so just kind of the she does a great job the disappointment like they're you know not surprised but also profoundly disappointed that they are this legislation doesn't include them right um, 
And then the other piece, of course, that it was a requirement in the first, in this initial iteration, Bill C-14, was the requirement of day of consent. Um, someone needed to be um, able to consent right before the administration of the medication to mm-hmm. receive medical assistance in dying. Right. Um, capacity fluctuates. Right. So what we mean by capacity is that the person is assessed as being capable, duh, of saying, yeah, this is what I want. Yeah. And things mm-hmm. like pain medication can, like capacity fluctuates because of like pain medication and, and things like that. And also if someone has a diagnosis that impacts their cognition or like, for example, if someone has a cancer that has spread to their brain or it's initiated it, or originates in their brain, it beca- it became at that time people were starting to feel like oh my i have to choose my day i i i'm assessed as eligible for maid because right. i meet the criteria but i need to choose a day that i can guarantee i'm still going to have the capacity to consent on that day i see so what what is preferable is some sort of advanced directive yeah i mean Ideally, I think that's what sort of a lot of people think. And what what happened in that initial um, iteration is that people felt that they were choosing their death day, in quotation marks, earlier than they actually wanted out of fear that they would be rendered ineligible due to loss of capacity. Right. Um, Which is kind of what Kay Carter argued. Right. So this is actually not physical capacity. We're not talking about physical capacity. Right. Kay That's Carter's, a distinction. Yes. But the same kind of principle. Yes. The, the same kind of principle, but this is actually the capacity to um, consent. It. Yeah. Got it. And um, the, the, there's a, some notable people. So when we're talking about these, like immediately everyone's like, uh, this is too strict. And they start challenging Bill C-14. Right. Those are the two big things that were immediately sort of pinpointed as like, the, these are too strict and, and we think they need to change. Is the day of, co- like the yeah. consent day of and the reasonably foreseeable. So we have some new challenges and some new names. That's right. There is a woman called Audrey Parker. Okay. She recorded a video. Now hers wasn't a court challenge. It was more like, she got into the public consciousness by recording a video. She yeah. she had a diagnosis, uh, stage four breast cancer. Um, she was uh, assessed as eligible for MAID. So that in the timeline, we're kind of at 2018-ish. So her diagnosis was, her diagnosis was um, I believe, in 2016. She chose her... Death day is November 1st, 2018. Prior to that, recorded a video uh, explaining why, she, she, you know, hey, Canada. Yeah. Really glad that made passed. Here's the human example of why some of the rules are too strict. I am dying sooner than I want. I have more things I want to do. Um, was this just like a YouTube video? Like she just went on and that's how people saw it? And, yeah, and, and, uh, that's okay. She, I, I think I watched it on YouTube. But that's a good question. I, you know, I'll look it up and, and figure it out. Well, I mean, so just one of the differences, like starting in 1993, Susan Rodriguez, and then we're getting to 2018, you know, the onset of the internet has probably... Oh, for sure. ...expanded this conversation exponentially. Absolutely. 
And I mean, I, I think if you, the other thing in, in Dr. Green's book, she describes a situation where she had met the family, determined someone to be eligible f- to receive maid. And they, when she showed up on the day, they had taken pain medications and were no longer eligible. Um, and so that was very painful for the family. Right. And they really saw it as their, their loved one, not, not having agency in their, like choosing their own death. I mean, it's, yeah, of course. she did what she had to do. That's yeah. like, it was legislated that way. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, so you're right. And tech has had played a big role. People know who Audrey Parker is because she was able to have her voice heard. So we have the video and then now we have a court challenge. And then there was also a court challenge. And that was in Quebec. Yeah. And that was uh, Jean Truchon okay. and Nicole Gladue, two individuals who... Joining forces. That's right. And they challenged the reasonably foreseeable part of Bill C-14. Tell me a, a bit about those two. So um, Truchon... Uh, is a man was a man who ha- was born with cerebral palsy, and three uh, three of four of his limbs were non functional from birth. Uh, he ended up losing the function of his fourth limb uh, in adulthood. Uh, was living in an assisted or like a, a care home, and he argued, of course, that he should that he should have the right to die but his diagnosis didn't mean that his death was reasonably foreseeable right nicole gladue was a woman uh with post polio syndrome she was in a wheelchair um so same argument that mm-hmm. neither of those diagnoses nor the way they were living necessarily meant that their death was reasonably foreseeable and the fact that they couldn't access made um, because of that violated their their rights that are guaranteed under the um, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So the judge in Quebec yeah. agreed with them. Okay. And struck down, agreed that the reasonably foreseeable requirement violated their rights, mm-hmm. struck that down, gave the provincial and federal government six months to figure it out. So one thing that was different uh, this one yeah. was like, so last time we heard that Stephen Harper was like, nah, yeah. challenge. Right. This time they did not, no one challenged it. Right. They're like, fine. Yeah. Like, Great. Yeah. That's fine, Quebec. <laughs> um, yeah. So they chose not to appeal. So it no. didn't go to the Supreme Court. Right. Um, and then the that resulted in like more committees trying to figure stuff out and Bill C-7. Bill C-7 was a new act to amend the criminal code. Okay. And what that did, it was introduced in October 2020, uh, and it passed in March of 2021, and it introduced the two-track approach. So essentially, it brings us to where we're at today. That's right. All right. The two-track approach. That's right. Please explain. Okay. So the (laughs) two-track approach. This is where it gets like um, a bit more like... When I talk to my parents and their friends, yeah, and they are sort of like, 
I would like to um, do my maid assessment plan for my maid uh, now in case something happens. And so like the more you kind of like when Bill C-14 came out, super strict. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, now we have this Bill C-7, which introduces the two track approach, which I'll explain. It's a bit more lenient. People start to be like, wait a second. I wonder if I'll ever be able to. Right. So two track. First track. You got track one. Yeah. Which is basically like quite similar to the original legislation um if death is reasonably foreseeable for the individual they um and they're eligible for maid uh the couple of changes um to the original uh legislation they only have to have one witness on their written request and they don't have to have a 10-day reflection period. That was that we didn't say that, but that was in the original legislation. Right. Now, the other thing that was added to track one, so mm-hmm. for someone whose death is reasonably foreseeable, yeah. is the waiver of consent. So this was called Audrey's Amendment, which is after our friend Audrey Parker. Right. And um, that allowed folks who were concerned about losing capacity mm-hmm. to... Uh, have a, do a waiver of consent with their physician that allowed them to receive made on their chosen day, even if they were no longer assessed as capable. Okay. Now there are some safeguards in place for that. Like the person um, administering made de- if the person, if the individual who's receiving made makes any kind of gestures, like they don't want it, they can't proceed. Things okay. like that. Sure. But they are, they are, can like sign a waiver for um sorry same day consent they can sign that away right right so um the other track which is um for was relevant for someone like jean truchon and nicole gladue Mm -hmm. was the it removed the reasonably foreseeable requirement track two does not have the requirement of death being reasonably foreseeable so There are different safeguards in place for track two. And that is, I mean, it's, I mean, it's understandable. There is a minimum of a 90 day assessment period Uh, that can be waived. If there is a fear of loss of capacity, Mm -hmm. Uh, it can be shortened. Not, I don't think entirely waived, but shortened. Uh, One of the two assessors must be an expert in the condition. So for example, with Jean Truchon, one of the assessors, would necessarily need to be an expert in cerebral palsy. Right. Uh, and I should say, we didn't specify this, that all along the way, like made legislation from the jump has required two assessors for the individual to assess them as eligible. So okay. it's not just like Dave goes to Dr. Smith. The Dr. Smith is like, yes, and that's yeah. it. There needs to be a second opinion, basically. Sure. Okay. In all cases, people must be informed of the alternatives to medical assistance yep. in dying. They um, they need to be able to demonstrate that they've considered those alternatives, you know, all of these sort of like safeguards. So basically we have these two tracks you're going in and one is if your diagnosis is terminal and the other is if it isn't. Mm-hmm. And then there's eligibility requirements for either track. That's right. All right. So it puts us down. So problem solved. There's no more problems, right? <laughs> It's all solved. Um, so what that track two does also, yeah. I mean, we mentioned before yeah. that um, there were several recommendations were, that weren't included in the legislation, mature minors. That's yeah. still not included. 
I have no idea if if Canada is going to become comfortable with mature mature minors receiving aid. That's a tough one. It's a tough one. I don't hear a lot of people talking about. It. Is is something people talk about a lot? I'm uh, sure there's advocates. I'm sh- there definitely are advocates. I think the number is probably not as many like number from a numbers perspective. Yeah. Uh, there's working groups that that yeah. are working on what that might look like or the ethics of it, all of those things. There's always working groups. Yep. I think this is the one thing that we just are walking down the street of Canada. Yeah. We don't necessarily know. There's thousands of working groups happening around us. Yeah. So maybe we should get more educated on uh, mature minors. That's right. Okay. Um, the Also, mental illness as the primary diagnosis. With this second track, yeah. um, it kind of opens the door for that. Because when you're saying that someone is eligible for MAID and it removes the reasonably foreseeable criteria, that necessarily includes mental illness as a primary diagnosis. And if it doesn't, that technically would violate those individuals' um, rights under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Okay. But it is, of course quite controversial right i can imagine yeah so the the decision around mental illness as the sole diagnosis it initially it was meant to um sort of open the door for those folks uh starting march 17th 2023 they were like okay which is come and gone it's come and gone yeah we it was delayed until then because they felt like this warrants a bit of more discussion because as we mentioned that that B, bill c7 that passed in 2021 they're like we got to delay this mental health decision let's let's delay it until uh march 2023 because we need you know some planners to Did you say march 17th march 17th baby 2023 yeah is it a coincidence it's St. Patrick's Day? I I like to think so. <laughs> They're just like, let's talk about this later. We got we got a place to be. We got things to do. Um, yeah. So then they they um, requested the gov. Yeah. The gov. Dot ca. Uh, requested another year delay. Okay. Uh, leading up to the March seventeenth, twenty twenty three deadline, they received a year delay. It's understood they there will be no further delays. Now, I like, I mean, that, that doesn't mean necessarily that I think there could be challenges to this, but technically mental health as a primary diagnosis is scheduled to become a, part of the eligibility criteria in March 17th, 2024. Okay. Um, so there's lots of conversations going on, informal and formal about this and what it means. So while they're talking about this, I suspect they're, they're getting the language for some sort of amendment to include mental health and stipulations and I mean I everything hope so. that surrounds it. Leading up to this the previous deadline that they've missed, like I've have had conversations with physicians that I've worked with and other clinicians because I you know I worked for a long time in uh, mental health and addictions out in British Columbia. And there was this like overwhelming sense of um is someone going to tell us is someone going to give us guidance here? Like what I've not been asked. I'm a clinician who could potentially be asked to assess this person yeah. and no one's asked me what I think right. or I've not been participating. Doesn't mean it's not happening, but there was this sort of like a real feeling of like marching towards a deadline yeah. and no one seems to know what the hell's going on. Right. 
And I guess that's why they requested a year delay. Sure. Well, we're halfway there. I know. And so I think it's, I, there's actually a really great Vox does, um, I, on YouTube, I found a sort of debate between Dr. Stephanie Green, mm-hmm. who I know I mentioned her a lot and it seems like, uh, I, she's my hero and she is. So <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just laughed right into it. Um, she and a psychiatrist out of Ontario whose name I can't remember shamefully did a wonderful job. Less, less of a hero. <laughs> you, I mean, clearly. I don't know enough about him. He yeah. seemed like a nice guy. Sure. Uh, I can understand. I can totally understand the argument against or the the feelings of discomfort that folks who work in mental health have around this right um they do a really good it was on youtube like a debate around the sort of ins and outs of made in canada now dr stephanie green is not a psychiatrist she her her picture is a bit bigger right so she is for example she gives an anecdote and i just i read it in the book and she also provides it in this debate yeah that just makes me like oh where she says she was she had a a fellow she was working with who was assessed as who had lived many years in like pretty significant pain yeah who when made was passed was sort of quite um you know, felt hopeful about that, was assessed as eligible. A sense of relief, yeah. Yes. And she was his physician who yeah. was providing maid. And on while they're, they're, you know, he said goodbyes to his goodbyes to his family and things, and she's t- chatting with him. They're having their final conversation. Yeah. And he says to her, I, Dr. Green, I don't, I don't, I know this sounds really odd, but it, this feels like you've saved my life. Right. And I find that to be like a really moving anecdote totally. in this discussion about sure. medical assistance and dying. Yeah. And I can currently understand why a psychiatrist who wor- has spent their life working with folks with profound mental illness is disturbed by the idea of someone being able to like what are the parameters for someone being able to receive maid? Yeah. Because from his perspective, he's worked with people who have improved their mental health and quality of life has improved with the treatment they receive. Mm-hmm. So there's no easy answer. Which is why it's so controversial. I That's mean, they're right. coming to the same problem with different ideas and different solutions. I will say that I have um, worked with a lot of um, a lot of people who have at various times or consistently throughout the times I've worked with them expressed the desire to die. Um, and there are, I, I, the, I completely understand why it's so controversial because I have worked with folks who have experienced profound anxiety, depression, and are also lacking the social determinants of health that would improve their quality of life. And maybe they wouldn't, um, necessarily feel like they their life is intolerable mm-hmm. versus I, uh, like the folks who w- are considered their depression for example is considered refractory which means it's non-responsive to treatment and that has been their reality since they can remember so people who have told me they they had started having suicidal thoughts at the age of six their first attempt was in like their single digits like and have tried um, all the groups, all the meds, they've done ECT, they, and just this profound desire to not live any longer has existed with them the entire duration of their life. Mm-hmm. And this is why 
um, I have two thoughts. I have two ways of thinking about, absolutely. you know, this, this sort of what is happening. And I think that a lot of the conversations that are happening now about these social determinants of health are important conversations. Yeah. Because we, um, as a society, if that is, um, an option for someone when things could be improved for them with, with like, I just, I think that is egregious. Yes. I also think that that shouldn't render everyone ineligible due to like with a primary diagnosis of mental illness. Yeah. I, I don't envy the people trying to make these big decisions and have these big conversations with because there's real stakes. No kidding. Um, but you know, it's 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 something that's necessary right now is to hear the people who are talking about it and hearing the people who are pleading for it and you know giving them a voice and some autonomy over their own life. Right. Um, and then the other, the other piece of course, is I mentioned my parents and their generation, uh, where they have, they're at an age, like in their seventies and eighties where they have, some of them have witnessed like their own parents having a catastrophic stroke or, um, a dementia Alzheimer's diagnosis and their quality of life reducing to the point that strikes a cord of fear in them to ever think about that them having to live, mm-hmm. you know, unable to care for self does not know who they are on a day to day. And they wonder, is that something that I can, could I set up my maid now, um, to plan ahead? Like if I'm ever living under these conditions, I want to receive maid and right. be approved for that. Yes. It sounds like a reasonable request. You can do that, right? You cannot do that. <laughs> This is literal. We're literally doing an interstitch on an episode that was just us recording in the first place. Right. How do you want to get into this? Well, let's get into it. Okay. Um, because, well, it did occur to me actually that we could just lie and record it and pretend that we did it all at once. <laughs> but the world should know that we're nothing if we're not honest, Muzz. We're honest. I wanted to do an interstitch because I listened to our conversation and I was yeah. like, oh, Amy, you didn't do a great job explaining one of the things okay so, i don't i that's your assessment it is it is my assessment and um i just real quick real quick uh, uh, of an interstitch here to expand a little bit on the advanced requests okay so i think um there's a bit more nuance than our conversation allowed my fault Um, and so I think it's important to clarify some things because actually there continues to be debate about particular aspects of advanced requests. Um, and there are petitions going around. So it's, the conversation is continuing. Um, so for us to understand, for the audience to understand, I think it's quite important. And then people can decide if they want to go sign a petition. Sure. Yeah. What would you like to clarify? Well, when we talked about Audrey's amendment or the waiver of final consent yep. that was brought in with Bill C-7, mm-hmm. one of the things that I didn't do a great job in explaining was that, um, you know, Bill C-7 did open the door for this waiver of final consent, which is an advanced request-ish, um, but it, it doesn't go as far as um, what a lot of people would like. So... 
um, a, a person is eligible to sign a waiver of final consent if they meet the full eligibility criteria for MAID mm-hmm. um, and their death has become reasonably foreseeable. So that's track one right. that we talked about. Yep. Um, but we didn't. I didn't say to you, this is the full eligibility criteria, and that was a mistake. So okay. I'm just going to go ahead and read that. All right, let's do it. So in order for someone to be assessed as eligible for MAID, at the time of assessment... They must have a grievous and irremediable condition. Side note, I was also pronouncing it irremedial. It's irremediable. It's a harder word to say. (laughs) My bad. Yeah. I'm not even going to try to say it. (laughs) Yeah, don't bother. All right. Um, Yes, a grievous and irremediable condition. So that is serious, a serious incurable illness or disability that is in an advanced state of irreversible decline in capability and that illness, disease, or disability... Uh, causes them enduring physical and or psychological suffering that is intolerable to them and cannot be relieved under conditions that they consider acceptable. At the time of assessment, all of those conditions must be met for them to be eligible for MAID. Right. So once that happens, if the person um, is assessed, they have capacity, they're eligible for MAID, they have concerns about loss of capacity, Mm -hmm. they can then engage in the process of signing a waiver of final consent. Mm -hmm. And that's where, as we talked about, Audrey Parker died earlier than she wanted. This would allow someone to choose a death day that they are comfortable with, also knowing that they may not have capacity on that day and the doctor can still proceed with their wishes. Now, the Alzheimer's Society, a couple groups out there um, applaud the decision, but also say it, it doesn't quite go far enough because there are conditions out there that are capacity eroding at a rate that perhaps would render the people who have those conditions ineligible still to seek made, even if that's their desire. Do you have a little example of that? Sure. So if someone is diagnosed with Parkinson's, so if we're talking about capacity eroding conditions, yeah. those can include things like Alzheimer's, Huntington's, Parkinson's. Yeah. And we know that those are progressive illnesses. Mm-hmm. Someone may receive their diagnosis And they may lose their capacity to um, consent before they meet the require the other requirements. So if someone may lose their decision making capacity before their suffering is intolerable. Right. So at that point, they are not eligible for MAID. It just they, mixes up the order, essentially. Exactly. So it really is. Um, and the argument is that this sort of the way that they have done this an advanced request is only an advance request for those who are still have decision-making capacity. What is being debated and what is hoped now is um, for an advanced request that is made before all of the eligibility criteria are met. So not before diagnosis, certainly not, um, you know, someone just goes in and is like, hey, I'd like to make an advanced request for MAID. It's say you go to your doctor and you've been experiencing symptoms of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's and, mm-hmm. and you have your appointment and your doctor confirms that you do in fact have these progressive conditions. Yeah. Then the what is being debated right now is that those people could that ideally the, the hope is that they could be assessed as eligible for made by virtue of the diagnosis. Right. And then um, they could engage in, I'm sure, ongoing assessment and discussion around Say there are conditions under which they say they're, they would find their life intolerable or they, they don't want to live. There's, 
there's people who, I mean, I think it differs for everyone. So some people say, when I no longer recognize my loved ones, I don't think that's a quality of life I want for myself. Right. If I cannot manage my own personal care needs, you mm -hmm. know, there's certain bars that are, they're common themes. Right. So what that would allow for is um, this type of advanced request for a person and their care team and family, perhaps, come up with a set of conditions yeah. under which... Once they are met, it would trigger um, the administration of MAID. So it's dynamic, unique to each situation. Yes. So that is what is currently being debated. And I think it did, Audrey's amendment or the waiver of final consent did open the door for that conversation. Right. Um, and then the final thing, of course, is, as I alluded to, um, about this kind of absent of a diagnosis I'd like MAID to be, um, and we talked about it, we touched on it, sort of has the flavor of um, uh, an advanced directive. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the thing that is not really being debated right now at, from a legal or legislative perspective, to my knowledge. Okay. Um, because, I mean, if you think the more strict version, which is the advanced request with diagnosis, yeah, yeah. is still under debate. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think, like my parents are talking about a lot, they're probably constantly debating it. But the idea that someone could make a made um make made part of their advanced directive for example yeah and so just to clarify what an advanced directive is it's a decisionally capable it's a document that is created by a decisionally capable person um that designates it can designate someone else to make their health care decisions or can specify types of treatment that would be accepted or rejected should they lose decision-making capacity right lots of people have these Lots of care homes want all of their residents to have them so they know how to proceed if someone, if something happens and they're no longer capable. Um, and I think some people hope that they could add made to the, yes, the, the, I want that treatment on their advanced directive. Like in the event that I don't have capacity, like go ahead and actively um, assist me in dying. That is not um, available at this point. I don't, and like I said, I don't think it's on the docket for a debate at this point either. Doesn't mean it won't be. Yeah. Because as we've said, MAID is obviously fluctuating. And Real quick, is there nuance when you say someone is capable or um, has the capacity to make these decisions? Like, is there a legal, is there a definition or terms? Yeah, that there is a legal definition for capacity and it is assessed by certain professionals are have are so able to part of the process that's right yeah so capacity can be assessed by there's a course that one can take uh doctors nurses social workers occupational therapists <laughs> um yes so it is it is like a proper it's not just this sort of like wishy-washy has capacity and typically it would be someone who like understood as someone who um uh, is can understand uh, the information that's relevant to a treatment decision. They can also understand the consequences of following through with it or declining to follow through with it. And that is involves an assessment process if there's questions around capacity. Okay. Anyway, just thought we should uh, we should clarify that. All right. And uh, I think appreciate that's... your time. Oh, one last thing I wanted to yeah. tell people about a resource 
called Bridge C14, and I forgot to mention it in our conversation. What's that? It is a it can be accessed online. It's a it's a resource that started in 2016 when Bill C14 passed. Mm-hmm. They have tons of resources, groups for folks whose family members have chosen made, individuals who are choosing or have chosen made. There's a ton of support out there, peer support as well. I just want to make a plug for them because it's a really great organization that right. helps a lot of people. You can find them online. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Okay. Thanks, Maz. Bye. Bye. Well, that's a lot of information. I think I think Man. you've uh, maybe Ooh. it's maybe it's a good place to stop <laughs> for now. <laughs> but uh, I think you've covered um, a good history and a good explanation. I definitely feel more comfortable um, thinking about it and knowing about it now. One thing I do want to say. Yeah. I just like really want to give a shout out I, to all these people, these important names. Like one of the reasons, one of the things that when we were talking about doing this episode, yeah, that I wanted to specify the individuals who, so like Sue Rodriguez, Kay Carter, Gloria Taylor, Audrey Parker, Jean Truchant, Nicole Gladue, um, to not only explain like their role, uh, over the years in um, the creation of like the law we have now, but also just to like, there are people who are uh, like in Canada, in the world, but in Canada, like da- fighting daily battles that yeah. are challenging and painful. And they like Sue Rodriguez, she ultimately did receive assistance, but like she really, um, is a land like her, the Sue Rodriguez case is a landmark case. I'm sure like she's received a devastating diagnosis. She's a mother and she still has the fortitude. Like I just, I, I give, I want to give shout out and props to these people who have really participated in the shifting of the like public perception and also the laws in Canada. Yeah, I think you're right. I think when you ask me what I think about it and where we're at today, you know, the first thought we should have is like super grateful for mm-hmm. these, you know, people who, like you said, have the fortitude to go ahead and make these challenges. Yeah. And to be remembered to all of them, um, yeah. Sue Rodriguez obviously has passed. Jean Truchant received made, I believe, in 2021. Nicole Gladue passed away for uh, not from made um, in 2022, I believe. Audrey Parker has passed away. So um, thank you to them. And also shout out to Dr. Stephanie Green. Big time. Because everyone should read this book. It's wonderful. Can I borrow that book? Of course. <laughs> of course you can. Right. Um, and shout out to Muzz. Muzz. Oh. All right. Shout out to Amy. <laughs> I see what you're doing. Shout no, out but to you. <laughs> I'm, I'm fishing for a shout out. I'm like, when's Muzz going to give me a shout out? Um, no, but it's not like it's a bit of a dense topic. I personally find it fascinating how we got here. I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, and I also, I feel like it's, it is really interesting how, uh, when I talk about death and dying, like everyone I've talked to from, um, Penny and, uh, Phyllis and all those things, like they made is on their mind when yeah. they're at this point where they're like hopeful that it's available to them yeah. in a way that as a 44 year old woman, I don't necessarily feel, but right. when I talk to people of that age and they're just like really banking on made, yeah. I just think I understand like people, there's a lot of misunderstanding or like half understanding of what 
what the realities are and it's worth an ongoing conversation. Yeah, well, on their behalf, thank you, Amy. I'm I'm looking around and there's these huge, big post-it notes all around the office. Yeah. With all your research. $2 post-it notes. I guess they're expensive. <laughs> uh, but you've done a lot of work just because you want to help uh, keep this conversation alive and give it the due um, that it that it deserves. Yeah. So thank you for your work. Well, thank you. And I think let's keep the conversation going. Yeah. <laughs> let's do it. Okay. Okay.